0: Thank you.
1: Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, please help us grow. One of the easiest ways to help us is to leave our podcast a positive review. That moves us up in the popularity list and gets us more listeners. Also, tell a friend, tell family members about us. Tell them to head over to Ohio Mysteries.com and give us a listen. Let's throw another log on the fire campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent an award-winning 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to tell you about one of my favorite Ohioans, an inventor often overlooked in his lifetime because he was black, but a man so confident in his creations He literally risked his life and the life of his brother to prove they were worthy. It was Cleveland in 1916 when Garrett Morgan, without hesitation, left his home in his pajamas to use his patented gas mask in rescuing several men from a tunnel filled with toxic fumes. He's also the guy credited with saving countless lives As the designer of the three-color traffic light, Morgan's the one who thought of the yellow caution. There is a mystery here. Is Garrett Morgan the grandson of Colonel John Morgan? As in Morgan's Raiders, the infamous Confederate leader led a couple of thousand cavalry soldiers into Ohio to wreak havoc during the Civil War. He was killed in battle in 1864, and his slaves, including Garrett Morgan's father, Sidney, were freed. Family lore has always held that Sidney was the colonel's son. This summer, the family announced they were going to seek DNA confirmation of their bloodline, since there is no other way to verify this long-held belief. It would indeed be one more interesting chapter in Garrett Morgan's story. But even without it, Garrett's life is remarkable. The story of a brilliant giant who walked among us, even if we didn't fully appreciate it until after his death in 1963. Garrett Augustus Morgan was born outside Paris, Kentucky, on March 4, 1877, the seventh of eleven children. They could not have come from a more unique family tree. Both of his parents were former slaves. Their dad, Sidney, as I said, was believed to be the son of a Confederate officer, and their mom, Eliza Reed was the daughter of the neighborhood's Baptist minister and had a pedigree that included Native American ancestors. Slavery had ended 12 years before Garrett was born, but life was still very hard for black Americans. As slaves, they had been forbidden an education. They had no money, no savings. They struggled just to find and make a home, Children often left school early if they went at all because they were needed to contribute to the family's income. Garrett's own education stopped at the sixth grade. By his teen years, most of his older siblings had moved away, many of them resettling in Ohio. So, at the age of 14, Garrett decided to strike out on his own. He walked to the Kentucky-Ohio border, paid a ferryman to cross the Ohio River, then walked down the bustling streets of Cincinnati looking for work. He landed a job as a handyman for a wealthy landowner. He used some of the money he earned to hire himself a tutor and fill in some of the education he had missed out on. Four years later, he was off again, this time to Cleveland, Cincinnati was still too much like the South. He wanted a city that offered more of a future for a young black man, and he believed Cleveland held that promise for him. Once there, he landed a job at a sewing machine factory, Root McBride. That's where the magic happened. He was in the maintenance department, but he was intrigued by the mechanics of the sewing machine. He studied the inner workings of the device and obtained his first patents for improvements to it, including a zigzag stitch pattern. His employer was impressed, gave him a promotion, a bonus, and the confidence to chart a path that would change his life. Garrett's personal life was moving along as well. He married a co-worker, Mary Ann Hasek, a first-generation American whose parents immigrated from Bohemia, and the couple would end up with three sons. But their interracial marriage was a scandal, and Mary soon learned the cost of discrimination in America. They both lost their jobs at Root McBride, Mary was excommunicated from the Catholic Church at the request of her father, and both Garrett's and Mary's families refused to speak to them for years. But the couple, whose marriage would last 55 years, was a force to be reckoned with. They opened a sewing machine repair shop, and a year after that, a women's clothing store where Mary could put to use her skills as a seamstress the Morgan's Cut-Rate Ladies' Clothing Store came to employ 32 people. Morgan's continued role in the garment industry is what led to his next invention in 1909, though it had nothing to do with clothes. Sewing machine needles often scorched woolen fabrics due to the friction caused by that high-speed stitching. It was a common problem in the industry, and many people had tried to find a solution. Morgan gave it a shot and started experimenting with different chemicals. One day he stopped for lunch, wiped his hands on a rag, and walked away. When he came back, he noticed the curly fibers of the rag had straightened out. Intrigued, He used the solution on the fur of his curly haired Airedale dog, then finally tested it on his own head. In each case, the hair went straight. Morgan launched the G. A. Morgan Hair Refining Company, primarily selling the cream to African Americans who wanted the option of straightening their naturally curly hair into new fashions. The product was so successful. It would outlive Morgan himself, remaining a business until 1976. Morgan's success had given him a home, financial security his family never knew was possible, and the freedom to tinker with even more ideas. The next big breakthrough came in 1914 when he patented a safety hood, a breathing device that would protect the wearer from smoke and gas. He was inspired by a tragedy. In 1911, the famous fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory killed 146 garment workers in downtown Manhattan. Most of them were young female immigrants who had been locked inside for their shift. As Morgan read about the gruesome affair, he was particularly moved because he also had worked in the garment industry. He was also struck by how many of them died not from flames, but from smoke inhalation. He tackled the problem at once, designing a gas mask that firefighters could use to aid in their rescue. It was really quite simple. Smoke and other fumes tend to rise. So Morgan made a helmet that sort of looks like a beekeeper's hood, and he attached it to a pair of long tubes that dangled by the floor, taking advantage of where the air is clean. Incoming air was further cleaned by passing through a wet filter. Morgan tried to market the device himself. And he had a lot of success in Northeast Ohio, where firefighters appreciated how easy it was to use. It was even granted a gold medal by the International Association of Fire Chiefs. But Morgan met with a lot of resistance from people who didn't trust a black inventor, especially in the South. There, he hired a white actor to pose as himself and he pretended to be the inventor's sidekick. His lighter skin allowed him to get away with identifying as a Native American named Big Chief Mason. As the white actor explained the gas mask to potential customers, Big Chief would fill a tent with noxious smoke, then put on his hood and enter it. He'd stay inside for 20 minutes before emerging to a usually astounded audience. Morgan's gas mask even found its way into World War I, a conflict that relied heavily on trench warfare and had German forces lobbing chemical attacks at the Allies. Morgan lent his design to the U.S. government so they could make masks to protect the soldiers. Then came the day that Morgan had to depend on his invention for his very life. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. and Cleveland was drilling a new tunnel under Lake Erie. You see, smokestack industries had contaminated the water near to the shore, and the city was always having to reach further out into the lake for a fresh water supply. This time, tunnel workers, they called them sand hogs, were burrowing beneath Lake Erie through sand, gypsum, and limestone, to reach a point five miles from shore. Late that evening, they hit a deposit of natural gas. The explosion that resulted was so powerful, it instantly killed nearly a dozen men, tearing up the railroad tracks inside the mine and littering the tube with twisted conduit pipes and chunks of concrete. Two rescue parties entered the tunnel, hoping to find survivors. But without the proper equipment, they were quickly overwhelmed by the fatal fumes. The disaster would kill a total of 21 men. But there was a time it was believed more men were still inside that tunnel, trapped and alive. In the early morning hours of that warm summer night, Morgan heard a knock on his front door. Cleveland firefighters had seen Morgan's gas mask demonstrated before. Could it help them now? Garrett roused his brother Frank from bed. They collected the gas masks they had around the house and threw them into the car. Then, still wearing their pajamas, they raced to the lakefront. Garrett offered the masks to the rescuers, but after having seen a dozen would-be rescuers go into the tunnel and fail to return, they were not so willing to try. Garrett and Frank themselves donned the masks, removed their shoes because they were warned friction could cause another explosion, and entered the shaft to the tunnel. It was said Cleveland Mayor Harry Davis stood by, shaking his head and telling them, "'Goodbye.'" As they moved in deeper and deeper, the Morgan brothers saw the bodies of the miners and the rescue workers strewn across the tube. They began to remove the dead bodies, but encountered nine men who were still alive. They hauled the first two out, carrying them on their backs. With that success, two more rescuers outside donned the remaining safety hoods and went in to help. Most of the injured men did end up dying, but two survived, owing their very existence to the black man with the gas mask that he had to trick people into buying. In the days that followed, many people were singled out and celebrated for their heroism. Some were given cash awards. Four rescue workers received medals from the Carnegie Hero Fund, but not the Morgan Brothers. The New York Times and other national newspapers that recapped the story never even mentioned them. Morgan didn't suffer this slight in silence. He wrote a scorching letter to the Cleveland mayor who had refused to include them in all the accolades being handed out. Morgan wrote, I am not a well-educated man. However, I have a Ph.D. from the School of Hard Knocks and Cruel Treatment. And as if rubbing more salt in the wound, there was an unexpected backlash against his product. Newspapers had published pictures of him rescuing the miners, and several southern cities figured out that the guy that they had ordered their gas masks from was black. They started canceling their orders. A year later, a group of Cleveland citizens tried to correct the omission and presented Morgan with a diamond-studded gold medal. Morgan accepted it graciously, He had spent a lifetime fighting against discrimination, and the snub certainly wasn't going to stop him now. If anything, it motivated him, and he continued to find problems that needed fixing. Now, Morgan may have been the first black man in Cleveland to own a car, And you just know he spent a lot of time under the hood investigating how it worked and honing his mechanical skills. But it was his experience as a driver that led to his next big innovation, something we still use every day. In 1923, Morgan witnessed an accident between a car and a horse-drawn carriage. It was at a busy intersection in Cleveland. A little girl was seriously injured, and the horse was killed. Morgan thought that was an accident that could have been avoided. Cars had been sharing the road with horses and pedestrians for a couple of decades by then, and some intersections had even installed electric traffic signals with a red and green light to help everyone navigate this brave new world. But red and green leaves no time for reaction. It was Garrett Morgan who came up with the idea of a yellow caution light, which, of course, allows drivers to know it's time to slow down. The red light is coming. He patented his design in the United States, Britain, and Canada and eventually sold the rights to General Electric for $40,000. As part of the black community, Morgan felt a responsibility to a bigger cause. He was active in the newly formed NAACP, donated to Negro colleges, and even opened an all-black country club called Wakeman on land that he purchased. In 1920, he co-founded The Cleveland Call, an African-American newspaper that was the predecessor for today's call and post. Morgan died in Cleveland on July 27, 1963. He was 87 years old, and had been effectively blind for the last 15 years of his life due to glaucoma. Even as his sight waned, he continued to invent. One of his last patents was for a self-extinguishing cigarette. It used a small plastic pellet filled with water placed just before the filter so the cigarette would put itself out if it reached that point. But it wasn't until after his death that Garrett Morgan received his due, and historians and authors took interest in what were really humanitarian inventions. Morgan's gas mask is featured at the Museum of Firefighting Hall of Flame in Phoenix, Arizona. He was inducted into the National Inventors' Hall of Fame in 2005. Cleveland named its Garrett Morgan School of Science and Math for him and, appropriately, its Garrett Morgan Water Treatment Plant. There are also schools named for him in Chicago, the Bronx, Lexington, Kentucky, Patterson, New Jersey, and in Prince George's County, Maryland, a boulevard bears his name. Garrett and his wife Mary are buried at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. The inscription on his small, simple gravestone reads, By his deeds, he shall be remembered. If people didn't fully believe it when he died in 1963, it certainly has proved to be the case since then.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to to ohiomysteries.com I promise you will not be disappointed Paula has put a lot of work into that page you'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers we'll see you here Wednesday and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well